1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Mona Karim about her essay, Mapping Exile, a writer's story of growing up stateless in post Gulf War Kuwait, which appeared in a portfolio of work from the Arabian Gulf in issue 22 of The Common. Mona Karim is the author of three poetry collections. She is a recipient of a 2021 NEA Literary Grant and a fellow at the Center for the Humanities at Tufts University. Her work appears in the Brooklyn Rail, Michigan Quarterly Review, Fence. Poetry London, Los Angeles Review of Books, Words Without Borders, Pen America, Modern Poetry in Translation, and Two Lines. Her translations include Ashraf Fayad's Instructions Within and Rod Abdelkader's Except except for This Unseen Thread. Mona Karim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Would you set the scene for our conversation? Just describe for listeners where you're living and calling from now.
1: Yes, I am calling in from my office at Tufts University Center for Humanities, Um, and we are expecting a snowstorm.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, we're bracing. This is probably the last <laughs> human contact I'll have for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. I would love to start off with a reading from your essay. Would you read the first few paragraphs for us? Yes. Um,
1: okay. Sitting on a green couch in what is now a bed bug-infested Brooklyn apartment, I suddenly realized that my flight to meet my family for the first time in five years was actually tonight, not tomorrow, 12.30 a.m., not 12.30 p.m. I had planned to wake up early in the morning, make two cups of coffee, and pack a small bag with the few gifts I managed to buy last minute for my siblings. I thought I had more hours to sit with my heavy feeling, which I assumed to be a mix of excitement and longing, but which was rather a combination of weariness and fear, of things going wrong, of encounters no one can prepare for. In front of the couch there was a round coffee table, which I circled around in panic, not sure if I could make it to JFK on time, to Kiev on time, to Tbilisi on time. For months, my sister and I had saved and borrowed so we could have this one-week reunion trip in a country we knew nothing about. A few months after my arrival in the United States, the Kuwaiti had denied my application for a passport renewal, subsequently making me an asylee. My family's attempt to get U.S. visas were repeatedly denied, so we began to make different plans. We called embassies every morning in the United States and in Kuwait. I asked, Do you accept a U.S. refugee travel document? How long to issue a visa? While they asked, Do you accept a stateless travel document? How long to issue a visa? The mutually closest country was Georgia, a place Arabs have come to discover in the past few years, this time not as conquerors, but as refugees in transit, hoping to infiltrate Europe from her eastern side. I left Kuwait in august twenty eleven, really the best time to leave Kuwait when it was one hundred twenty degrees Fahrenheit. I knew I would be unlikely to return any time soon. My dream of leaving the country was as old as my body. Fascinated with the possibility of other places I was also dulled by my place of birth. But most of all I was tired. Tired of being stateless, tired of a state younger than my father telling me I didn't belong or I wasn't native enough.
0: Thank you for reading that. For our listeners who may not have read your essay yet, would you just describe what the piece is about?
1: Yes. Um, this piece, as, as the title suggests, it's about mapping exile. I um, wanted to write a, an essay about the, this specific experience of being exiled, but also stateless, you know, like these two um, forms of violence, I guess, meeting each other. But I ended up um, finding that exile and displacement is not something I experienced alone. It's actually, it runs in my family, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, in a circle. So um, this essay was an effort of like tracing this and trying to tell a multi-generational story of displacement, um, but through my own uh, experience.
0: That's great. Uh, the, just as you just said, uh, you know, this essay looks at, at many things, but one of those things is Kuwait's mistreatment of Badoon people, stateless people. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that idea, you know, about what makes someone Badoon in the Gulf. But I also know, you know, from reading the essay, that it, it's a question that y- you often struggle to answer. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a really nice line in, in the essay where you write that the term is a way to define someone by negation. And I, I think many of our listeners probably aren't familiar with. Bedouin, either as like a term or as a problem. So I wondered if you could just tell us a little more about it.
1: Yeah. Um, so people often mix uh, uh, the word Bedouin with Bedouin, you know, uh, because they mm-hmm. sound similar in English. But Bedouin comes from the Arabic word, um, or the term really, Bedouin Dinsia, which means without nationality. That's like the legal term that we were uh, uh, given by the state back in the 60s. Um, and then it became short, you know, it, it was shortened to just be doing like, and um, so this is what I mean. It's in negation without nationality. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. how do you define yourself that way, right? How do you define yourself by negation, by only a legal status instead of, say, culture, ethnicity, you know, other shared um, um, features that pe- uh, people are usually um, used to, you know, uh, imagine themselves through, um, and um, I mean, I don't know how. <laughs> as I said, you know, I struggled to answer this 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 mm-hmm. question because uh, we are not a monolith, you know, and it was it's not like a, a very linear and straight story. But um, I tried to explain in the essay that we are, as other groups in in the Arab Gulf, I would say across the Third World, really, um, who. Found themselves in this situation because nation states were were uh, born and they were arbitrary and and their borders were arbitrary. Um, mm-hmm. And as as the Native American saying goes, we didn't cross the border; the border uh, crossed us. You know, it's it's similar <laughs> to that, yeah. <laughs> because the Arabian Peninsula was one region; the Gulf, you know, was open to the Indian Ocean. You know, mm-hmm. um, so um, uh, you know when this reality changed, we we became the people stuck. In, in this new reality. So we are native, but we are stateless, you know, and, and how how do you reconcile these two contradictions?
0: That's great. Um, Yeah, that's a very thoughtful way of looking at it. And I, I think, um, definitely correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like um, your family and a lot of the people who have been labeled as stateless in Kuwait, uh, sort of like uh, something that happened after the Gulf War, is that correct?
1: Um, so no, the uh, statelessness, has been there or the label has been there since the the, the formation of kuwait as a state um oh, okay. however, however the gulf war was a really turning point because uh, you know we were for a long time we were told that our statelessness is only temporary it will be resolved you know um uh, my father's generation enjoyed many rights but then when the gulf war happened in 1991 One, after that, we became one of the targeted groups, and um, that violence took place specifically when it comes to documents and and basic access to education, healthcare, and so on.
0: I see, I see. Thanks Mm -hmm. for for, for correcting that, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering you know, this is just such a complicated issue. I'm wondering if there was like a specific moment or a specific idea or incident that inspired you to start work on this essay and sort of tangling with, with these things and and also just anything you can tell us about sort of the early drafting process. Um,
1: so I've been writing this for years, honestly. <laughs> I started <laughs> uh, when my asylum letter arrived um, uh, from the uh, USCIS and mm-hmm. it had this line where it says, you know congratulations you've been accepted and so on but then it says you may now restart your life or yeah something to that <laughs> <laughs> you know right. something to that line you know that and, and it really struck me that they used the word restart or the verb restart because i did feel so you know i did feel like my life was a uh, uh, passed in a way you know and and in, in the middle so i began writing it but for what I struggled with is that I, I felt there was something missing from the essay, you know, because I was focused more on the U S context, you know, just me, uh, like, as you know, there are so many narratives about displaced, uh, migrant, refugee, um, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in U S literature, let's say. Um, but I wanted to contribute this specific thing of being also stateless, um, and coming to the United States. Um, and then I, after years, you know, especially when I was invited to contribute this essay, I realized, oh, I need to tell the story of Bedoun. Like, that is what is missing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why you see it in the middle of the essay, because I really worked it in later, because I was like, oh, I cannot, you know, um, expect them to understand my, my arrivals when uh, I didn't tell them about my departures, you know. So, like, um, this mm-hmm. is when the essay really comes together.
0: Oh, interesting. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it feels really, yeah, it feels seamless because I think, as you say, like being stateless in the U.S. comes from, you know, a long tradition of, of being stateless elsewhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, is there anything you can tell us about the revision process, either just, you know, the revision you did on your own or, or when it was being prepared for publication? Um,
1: well, I, I want to say, um, working with Jennifer Aker and Noor Naga, the the, the editors of this issue, mm-hmm. it was really a beautiful experience. Um, I will say also, <laughs> you know, uh, not to upset anyone, but really working with women editors is much better. <laughs> um, you know,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know. No so, comment.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, there is. I've I've experienced like um, different kinds of editing, but this one was beautiful because it was constructive. Um, I was given my, my, my space because I, I was also telling them, you know, I have this concern to balance the informative with the with that, with mm-hmm. the emotional and and the personal, you know, and the collective thread with the per, uh, individual one. Right. So, um, this was at the heart of my concern as a writer. Um, so they, they, uh, you know, acknowledged this, you know, they, they honored this in the process. Um, with each draft, I felt like, um, they helped me tap into like yeah you know go there you know like um, don't just like give us a, a line if, if this is something you can explore you know and 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 sometimes I didn't necessarily go there but the 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 parts where I did it, it was great you know it really serviced the mm-hmm. the, the essay and I, um, I it was one of those rare occasions where the back and forth with the editors was actually enjoyable and you you see it reflected in your work.
0: Oh, good. Yeah. Hopefully not a battle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all.
0: <laughs> um, just, you know, thinking about what you said about how you worked through this essay and, you know, added things to it later. Do you have any like revision advice or sort of practices that you go back to when you're revising things that, that you think others might be interested to know about?
1: Um, yeah, I will say uh, over the years, what I learned as a writer is that it's always important to, you know, uh, allow yourself like to to you know like to to write a rough draft you know go there just do uh, um, don't hesitate too much don't research too much you know uh, sometimes mm-hmm. that's our way of, of avoiding do, like um, the writing act because it's it's always intimidating no matter how how experienced you are um but then you know a lot understand that the editing process is um, is a different process you know and it's about Uh, growing and attending to the to the um, text so I always like to you know leave some space you know um, um, leave it for a few weeks sometimes um, uh, talk about it Uh, this is something really interesting I noticed that uh, just verbally speaking about uh, an essay I find myself um catching certain things that i i know that i realized i just didn't distill you know i didn't you know uh pronounce so when i talk to a friend i'm like oh yeah i'm writing you know about this and and i'm doing this and that and as i'm speaking you know i just like find myself like uh, unlocking certain things so um there Mm -hmm. are different ways to process your essay and it's um um, yeah, I, 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 w- I think this is the best advice I can give is that, you know, um, to understand that the writing process has different layers, and sometimes they can happen simultaneously.
0: That is very good advice. <laughs> because your family were were Badoon. your mother's family were were exiled and deported to iraq when you were 5 and and it's like a very intense visceral part of the essay these memories of your mother crying and then the memories of of communicating after with your exiled loved ones through tearful cassette and and videotape recordings and, and it's really awful, but there's also sort of a matter-of-factness to the way it, it's written. And I was just wondering if you could talk about getting that section right when you were writing, you know, get, making that feel feel balanced and, and nuanced. Um,
1: yeah, thank you. Because,
0: like,
1: it, I, you know, until the essay was published, I was kind of embarrassed, you know, about um, um, the essay overall and these uh, parts, just because it's so hard to be vulnerable, you know, to to, Mm. to share your own story and your family story, you know. And um, as I mentioned in the essay, my mom um, also thinks that uh, her pain is unspecial because it happened to us collectively, you know. So Mm. there were always different ways that we tried to brush this, you know, uh, 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 just like brush it under and and, and try to think of it as if it's... um, And I, I even say the description of like, Every time I talk about these these memories, it's always like bullet points, you know. And and I wondered about this. I'm like, why do I remember these painful memories in this abrupt way when I am actually a poet, you know? I am supposed to uh, uh, think <laughs> into them, you know. Right. So yeah. So um, when uh, this this part about like uh, the deportation scene and, and and all of this, it really came later in um, in the writing process. Um, and I. I, it took me so much courage because it's actually a taboo to talk about that history. You know, we have so many in Arabic, we have um, many uh, uh, Bedouin writers, uh, um, usually poets, but now we have more fiction writers and, and all kinds of artists. And we talk about like our collective cause and, and, and so many things. But that history of like post-Gulf War and how we were targeted, deported in Massey, you know, and, and, and put in jail and even torture. Uh, I mentioned that my my uncle was uh, was tortured. Um, all these uh, uh, stories, uh, because we were traumatized, we haven't yet spoken about them. We haven't put them in novels and and, and poems. Uh, people back home are also scared of retaliation if they ever tap into this. Um, the people who were deported to Iraq also were like somehow. Um, you know, broken away from, from the collective. So they were pushed to just like move on and and, and forget about that, that history. Mm -hmm. Um, So I find myself, and I think I am privileged by the distance I took, right? Uh, I've been living in the United States over a decade. So that allowed me time uh, to, to contemplate and look at all these painful painful memories and uh, process them, uh, even uh, bring them up, you know, uh, uh, with my family or, or relatives, and I was like, I need to do this for us. You know, I need to put it there. I need to be the first to, to, to say like, yeah, this happened to us and it wasn't mm-hmm. okay. And, um, it was painful. And, and I want to tell you that, you know, most Bedouin people don't really speak English. Um, um, as you, you know, being underprivileged, you know, we are not, mm-hmm. we, many of us don't have like access that language. Um, so, uh, right away. The essay was translated into Arabic after it was published, and I love like how emotional like the responses were from the Bedouin because they were like,
0: wow. "Yeah,
1: they're like I live this. I remember my mom. I remember my, you know, my grandma saying this. I remember my, you know, that uncle uh, getting arrested or getting, you know, suddenly there was a flood of stories that they just needed permission. You know, they just needed to be." Um, you know, given name in in, in the world and in language, I
0: guess. Wow. That's really amazing to hear that, that, Mm -hmm. you know, that it was translated right away and that you got to see that other people had had really similar experiences. I really Mm -hmm. love, I love hearing that. Yeah. Um, Out of curiosity, did you translate it? Did someone else translate it?
1: Oh no! Yeah, someone um uh, is his name is al Harani. He's a Syrian translator. Um, and it was published on uh, uh, uh website. It's it's um a Syrian um, cultural slash political website. Yeah,
0: that's great. I'm so glad that it reached a whole other audience. That's really good. Yeah, me too. I think that there's a a really interesting thread running through this essay, or, or at least it seemed to me that there was a, about the coping mechanisms that a person develops to survive. And I think sometimes it's to survive like really real intense crisis, like becoming stateless or or losing part of your family. But sometimes it's just to survive like the questions you get tired of answering answering or explaining to people or the feeling of sort of discontinuity between the old life and the current life. Was that thread something you discovered in writing this or is that something that you've been sort of thinking over for a long time? Yeah, thank you for noticing this because I feel like,
1: yeah, it's it is a lifetime struggle. You know, even when I lived in mm-hmm. Kuwait, it was hard to answer these questions and to define yourself, and or to define yourself to other Arabs who are not necessarily aware of the Kuwait context. You know, um, and then coming to the U.S., you know, um, yeah, you you are sometimes you are reduced to just like. Um, an Arab immigrant or an immigrant or even larger identities such as Muslim immigrant, you know. And these are not, (laughs) even though people try to expand them and complicate them, sadly, they still remain generic. Um, So I struggled a lot, you know, trying to tell people, you know, about my story and, and, you know, like even just just this, this, this pain of, you know, as you said, you know, to be broken away from your family, to not be able to see them and exile, which is, it fascinates me and like how archaic exile is yet still humans have something more to say, you know, it's always, it generates hmm. more and more. Right. Um, so as you can see from this essay, you know, it's like, I say that like the bullet point, you know, uh, description, or I say that the answers, uh, um, get shorter, uh, but I also mm-hmm. learned through, especially with, with this essay, you know, and, and other writing projects, really, is that actually the longer answers are better, you know, like the essay answers mm-hmm. are better. The book
0: answers are better.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, because like someone got to do this work and, and, and you know, like um, take up all this space, you know, because I've always and, and I think... Many people of, of my community, we always feel so small because we feel like, oh, we're in a small country, we're on the margin of it. W- what are we in, in, in the world's, you know, <laughs> um, um, theater of tragedies or, or struggles or so on, you know? So you you mm-hmm. shrink yourself. But um, literature is, is exactly, works in, in, in the opposite way. Literature is like, no, ho- however small, you know, this is this is the space where, where you can... Um, um, extend it and, and be yourself and, um, uh, and express it.
0: Mm, that's great. So you're also a poet. Uh, you mentioned that. And, and I certainly felt that poetry while I was reading this essay. There's some really beautiful lyrical parts. Do you approach writing prose very differently than writing poetry? Is it totally different or is it like, you know, sort of starts out in the same process? Mm, um, um yeah
1: <laughs> I haven't talked about <laughs> I haven't really compared the two um yeah. um because I am also someone who is like who writes in different genres um and um I I try to yeah my writing process is is um is really similar maybe I can say that with poetry I feel um I always feel this urge that a poem needs to be completed even if it's a draft but like it cannot be half a poem it cannot be Hmm. Uh, an image or a stanza you know of course like you can put it there and to remind yourself but like I'm someone who feels anxiously like I need to complete this poem but with essays the I, I really enjoy the writing uh, process for an essay because you can always like write a paragraph and come back to it you know and often I find myself like once I have like the intro things become is easier you know like that because the intro is really the entry point really because you're saying like oh I'm gonna hold the thread from from exactly this point right um so like even when I wrote this essay I was like, how do I talk about you know the thing about exile is that it doesn't take place in one geography you know so like how do you do this and I love how you know um for example in uh, there is an essay that I always refer to by um, M Tavgosh called. Petrofiction, and he says that uh, uh the like that one of the biggest issues with with the novel or with with uh modern literature at large is that it's strict by both monolingualism and a geography it has to be one place so it becomes a challenge for us especially like writers who are displaced you know we we are challenging a whole tradition and uh, uh, um practice of writing is that how do you move between geographies you know how do you move between generations you know because you're telling a story that is also not like uh what do you call it vertical you know it's not it's not a nation it's not a nation state right you're talking about a group that is dispersed uh, in many places um so i I think that was mirrored in the writing process of the essay as well
0: Yeah, that's really interesting you you do a lot of work in translation and I wanted to ask you about a blog I saw on your website. You're sort of examining the now seems to be fairly common practice of Western English speaking poets, quote unquote, translating poems from, from languages that they don't speak mm-hmm. and how they can sometimes lose the poet's true style or even impose their own style onto it. Um, because because they don't speak that language mm. and the idea of translating style and tone is just, this is just something that i've been curious about for years i'm always asking translators about this because it sort of baffles me how translators are able to get style and tone right and especially mm. i think about that a lot with poetry where it's so so much about voice what can you tell us about how that works like when it's done well or or when it's not mm. yeah
1: um well to to just to give context about this this <laughs> essay i was asked to review a poetry book from the from the arabic um and i i like the the the, the poet very much his name is adnan sayyid he is an iraqi poet of the 80s generation um so while i'm reading it i noticed oh like it wasn't the the the, the translator doesn't know arabic um uh, and also she... Actually, this is her second translation of his work. Um, so I f- instead, you know, th- um, and 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 the essay uh, appeared uh, at the Birmingham Poetry Journal in in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found myself instead talking about this phenomenon in general because it's really old. Like we can go back to. You know, I mentioned Ted Hughes and Ezra Pound, but it's it's even older than that. And in the old times, I feel like we can excuse it because in the old times, um, <laughs> you know, like, um, I mean, of course, like the Western canon was very much uh, 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 like, um, let's say, um, I mean, not only white and male, but also the languages that people spoke were European. They, they weren't curious mm-hmm. about other languages. Uh, but now right. it's not excusable, you know. Now it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone, you know, the United States, all, all, all the universities have any language you can imagine is being taught, you know. So like, why is it right. that this practice continues? Um, so I use this to talk about power relations, um, and this is something older in, in translation theory, which is like. Uh, yeah, the idea is cool. You know, you're you're just like adapting your uh, uh, uh rendering, I call it rendition, you know, with with maybe sometimes with the poet themselves uh, sometimes with a co-translator. So as an idea, it sounds good. Why not, you know? But when it happens like with a right. famous poet to another famous poet, it becomes patronizing and it 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 tells us so much about the attitudes of at uh, attitudes of different literary industries. Um So this is like uh, uh, to to speak about that phenomenon. But uh, you mentioned specifically, yeah, how do translators do uh, uh, um, like translate style and translate um, tone or translate music? You know, Um, I really think Mm -hmm. it's a process of, you know, it's a negotiation uh, uh, process because sometimes you do compromise. You know, sometimes you feel like, um, um, you know, I I cannot do this uh, in in the target language or this does not resonate. So how do we? How do I draw on the on the target language poetics to help? You know, make up. So uh, it is very much a rewriting process, and this is a big debate in literary translation because some translators. Uh, uh object when you say it's a rewriting, I personally think it's a rewriting it's always a rewriting you know it's sometimes people mm-hmm. say it's a new writing you know um so of course you have to um um you know like i I always talk also about the the figure of the poet translator because in modern Arabic poetry, all the big modernizers of Arabic poetry were translators they would translate as a way of expanding mm-hmm. the poetics of the of the target language, you know? Um, so they don't think of the two acts as separable. And I grew up thinking this way. I, My poetry and translation are uh, interrelated, interconnected. They grow each other, they enrich each other, you know? Um, so whenever I'm translating someone, I'm thinking about myself also as a poet and how how does my poetics come in, you know? So um, yeah, and, and I would say it's a negotiation poem to poem, text to text, you know,
0: it's never one formula. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so interesting. Like I said, I could talk about that one thing all day. <laughs> um, so do you think that, for example, like if, if there was a, a a really nice musicality to a poem that you were translating from another language, you would sort of take that idea and then go to English and think about what sort of figurative language or, or or tricks or moves we have in poetry that make something sound really musical or beautiful?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, if I give uh, one of my favorite examples is Robert Bly, you know, of course, a giant American poet. But, you know, when you read, read his translations, you're like, wow, you know, it's like so enjoyable. He puts all his poetic talents in the service of the text.
0: Mm, that's great. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to plug another beautiful essay that you wrote. It just came out um, from Arab Lit Quarterly in a special section of writers reflecting on the process of self-translation. Would you tell us just a little about that? Yeah.
1: Um, so um, it's uh, I, I talk about in the essay like that I'm not really um, a 100% self-translator in the sense like I haven't published a book where it's like um, – um, it's like written in arabic and self-translated or vice versa but i did <laughs> I, I do think of self-translation as a mode of thinking and as an aesthetic and i try to like uh, appropriate it to speak of specifically what it means to be um, um you know a migrant writer and specifically a writer who was already Uh, published and, and and established in their language and then they migrate and then they have to write in this second language right so it's um it's a very specific experience and um when i what when i started writing in english i really felt guilty and i felt like i i betrayed my my own language and i felt like it's as if like i'm getting removed again from my place uh my natural place you know so what i did to comfort myself is like i went and tried to research who before me went through this experience. And it was so beautiful to see that I, I'm not alone. Actually, many Arab writers, Latin American writers, um, especially actually Soviet, uh, um, or like people of the so- previous Soviet Union, you know, um, experienced the same. And some of them mm-hmm. you would see they self-translated like Bratsky. he self-translated himself. Then he decided that he would write poetry in Russian and prose in English. You know, um, yeah, it's beautiful. Etienne it, like, Adnan always like wrote in French and English and self-translated, and, and and people didn't know what's the original and what's the translation. And I, I, am okay. in love of this like um, fluidity and like how um, it breaks like the ex- again the monolingualism that is expected of us and enforced enforced on us. And um, so I wrote this really small like response. Um, um essay of let's say or piece um to talk mm. about like self-translation is just um is a state of mind right uh for someone like me and it never has uh clear answers you know sometimes it's fulfilling sometimes it's not um just like being in exile right it's like i don't think we ever reach a point where we're like oh exile like I'm, I'm good being in exile or like i am uh um uh, what do you call it like uh, at peace with it right so um it's a constant struggle and of course my job as an artist is to make something out of this anxiety
0: th- that was just really that was beautiful i really enjoyed that your answer. <laughs> thank uh, you one last question always our last question oh. um what are you working on now What's what's next yes i am um
1: um working on my fourth poetry collection in Arabic. Um, and um, also, I want to say that there is a wonderful poet, Sarah Kamel. She's an Egyptian poet. Um, she's translating a selection of my poetry um, um, into English. Um, I already also have a poetry collection in English that should see the light <laughs> within the <laughs> next two years. Yeah. So that would be my That's first uh, debut in, in, in English, uh, like a full length uh, collection. Um, and, you know, since this essay came out, many people are pushing me to write <laughs> a collection of essays. So um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, feeling <laughs> I'm feeling tempted, honestly.
0: <laughs> That's great. Well, add me to the list of people pushing you to put out a collection of essays. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Mona Karim, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great to talk with you.
1: Oh, thank you, Emily. It's um, been really enjoyable, and, and your, your questions are great. And thank you for sitting intimately with my text.
0: Oh, it, it was my pleasure, absolutely. Listeners, you can read Mona's essay, Mapping Exile, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.